This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. Thank you for that. And I love that this is called a wild sanctuary because even my own altar at home has Jesus on it next to St. Francis and the Buddha and Tyler Durden, and they get along just fine. (laughs) And even though technically I'm Jewish, ordained Buddhist, my mantra is Hindu, my morning meditation is the Catholic prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And I wanted to share that prayer with you today. Is there anyone who's not familiar with the prayer of St. Francis? Okay, even if there's one person, this, okay, there's a few. So, awesome. I will share it with you the way it was originally written, and then I will tell you what I changed about it. <laughs> I don't think St. Francis would mind once you understand, but the prayer is addressed to God, but if you're not comfortable with the word God, just add an O, good. And if uh, that doesn't resonate, then universe, uh, spirit, energy, The other day I was introduced to Gus. God, universe, spirit. Because I have a friend who sends all his prayers out to Bob, and and someone said, well, I send my prayers out to Gus. And I'm like, who's Gus? So I really like this concept of Gus. And, And so the prayer as originally written is, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that I shall not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, or to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. So it's beautiful. And I was introduced to it 29 years ago. And I sat with it every morning until one day I realized that it was, in a way, the way it was originally written was working against me. And here's what I mean. The prayer starts out by saying, Lord, make me an instrument of that peace. By definition, that implied that I wasn't already. And so it felt like I started my every day from a place of lack. And that did not reaffirm for me that which I wanted to affirm. It affirmed and sent. It's like, please, please make me something that I'm not. It's like praying, God, please give me strength. That implies that God somehow screwed up and forgot to, as opposed to saying, thank you for the strength, which taps into its unlimited supply. So the first thing I I changed was, instead of saying, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, I changed it to, I am an instrument of your peace. And immediately my posture straightened and it felt really heavy. Like, that's a big, to be an instrument of God's peace, that, that's a tall order. How do I even do, oh, oh wait, the prayer goes on. There's instructions. Oh, okay. <laughs> and where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. I was like, okay. And for the first eight years that I sat with that prayer, I misunderstood it. I thought my job was to go out in the world wherever there's hatred, so love, where there's injury, pardon, where there's doubt, faith, where there's despair, hope. I thought that was the calling. And then I realized the prayer was missing one very important word for me. And I added it. And now I say, Lord, I am an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred within, I shall sow love. 
the word within. It's not about me going out in the world and fixing what's out there. I'm part of the world. By fixing this, I am fixing the world. Does that make sense? That where there's hatred within me, because how can I do away with the hatred out there if I still harbor it within? So where there's hatred within, I shall sow love. Where there's injury within, pardon. Where there's doubt within, faith. And that, that really became, became kind of became the transformation and it's not grant that i shall not so much seek to be consoled it's i shall not so much like like a declaration that is not what i'm going to do and it ends with it's in dying that we are born to eternal life and that one took me a while to translate to something with which i can resonate because being born to eternal life it i do we have to wait till we die? Like, what is that? And I thought back to growing up in an extremely violent household, and I was beat up a lot. And that wasn't the worst of it. The, the, the worst part, the most painful part, was that it was inconsistent, that I didn't know that I was always going to get beat up. It was just when I was coming home from school, I, was, I didn't know if I was coming to a hug or a beating. And that became really scary. Home became a very scary place for me to come to. And, and I remember as a teenager, I, I would sit in my room and first I, I tried to think of ways to kill myself. And then I tried killing myself. And then I thought of ways to maybe kill my mother and get away with it. And then I realized I don't need to kill myself or my mother. What needed to die was my emotional attachment to her. And the moment I no longer looked to her for validation or approval or acceptance, I was liberated. And so this concept of it's in dying that we are born to eternal life, I thought, well, what needs to die? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, we are here to awaken from our illusion of separateness. And so the last part of the prayer that I changed was it's in dying to our illusion of a separate self that we are born to eternal life. So when we kill this notion that we are somehow separate from one another, we continue and we live on through everything and everyone around us. But if we think of ourselves as somehow separate, somehow different, somehow superior, and in order to feel superior, we, we need to make someone else inferior. In order to feel right, we need to make someone else wrong. Yogananda called it feeling tall by cutting off the heads of other men. And I think surely we can get to a place where we don't need to belittle someone else's truth in order to have our own. And so what we're going to talk about today after the service, we're going to, I know that we went over, <laughs> but we're going to come right back in here after a short break and we're going to unpack the many ways in which, not what you need to do in order to be happy, but how many ways you're contributing to your own anguish and how we can stop doing that. And it's very liberating to not wait for someone else to save us, but to realize I'm creating this and I can stop. And it's, I'm smiling because it's just, it's like the greatest opportunity in the world and it's right in front of us. And, and I used to think I had to wait for someone else to come and rescue me. And even, even with the beatings at home, it was really strange that I would sit in my room crying after I got beat and I would wait for my parents to come back and apologize for the same people who hurt me to come back and console me, which made no sense. But I grew up watching a lot of Who's the Boss? Do you remember Who's the Boss? 
with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano. I had a huge poster of Alyssa Milano above my bed, uh, right next to Axl Rose, very confused adolescence. <laughs> and, and who's the boss? It didn't matter how angry Tony got at Alyssa during the show. By the end of the episode, he would come into her room and he would apologize. And he would say, I'm sorry. And she would apologize for being a brat. And they would hug it out and it would all be fine. So growing up, I would sit in my room and wait for the very people who hurt me to come back and console me. And in school, you get bullied. What does the teacher do? She grabs the bully by the ear and she brings him over and says, now you apologize to him, right? So we grow up waiting for someone else, the same person we give the power to hurt us. We then give them, we go, go and wait for them to come back and console us. It makes no sense until I liberated myself from waiting for someone else to make me okay. And that's where Gus comes in. <laughs> because in the eyes of Gus, I'm not broken. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. If someone doesn't accept me, that's their issue. It has nothing to do with me. And so, without getting too deep into it, I, I, I did want to touch on the opposite of Namaste. Because we started out by singing Namaste, which was beautiful. And how did you phrase it? Was it the holy in me, the God in me? What, what were the lyrics? The God in me beholds the God in you. And that's beautiful. And that's really easy to do when you're standing in front of someone kind and patient and tolerant and generous, right? Then you're like, oh, namaste. I see the God in you. But it becomes really difficult to do when you're standing in front of a jerk. <laughs> because like, namaste jerk doesn't quite work. And yet, I've been a jerk before. I've been impatient before. I've been intolerant before. I've been short-sighted before. And so the opposite of namaste is not something we actually need to say out loud, but it's a process that we go through internally that whenever we witness someone doing what they're doing or behaving in a certain way, and it becomes difficult to say, I see the God in you, then I go, I know why you do what you do. Because the ego in me sees the ego in you. Right? That's the opposite of namaste. It's not the God in me, it's the ego in me. And I have one in me, and so I get why you do what you do. It eliminates judgment. For as far back as time, singers and songwriters and poets and philosophers have all tried to define love. And I really think the Dalai Lama nailed it when he said, love is the absence of judgment. It's that simple. Love, if you think, what is standing between me and being able to love the person in front of me? It's judgment. It's always judgment. And, and that's a superiority complex that you're somehow better than them. But when you eliminate that, you, the ego in you sees the ego in them, all that's left is love. And has been reaffirmed here so many times today, that's what we are. We are love. We just need to acknowledge the ego that gets in the way. Because someone said, well, the opposite of namaste, is that, is that just a different hand gesture that involves one finger? No. No, because that would, be a, that would still be judgment. That would be a superiority complex. This just invites us to say, the ego in me sees the ego in you, and the God in me loves the whole of you, ego and all. So I hope you come back to here right after uh, service, and we're going to have a whole discussion and Q&A about some of the stuff we talked about last year, about the difference between feelings and emotions, how we identify as victims without realizing it, how we get in our own way of happiness. 
We're going to unpack that together, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but that's the beauty of growth. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. So thank you so much. Thank you.